Hello and welcome to the launch of Crime Time Podcast. My name is Paul Burke and I write about books for Crime Time. Today we're joined by best-selling author Lee Russell to discuss her new novel, Evil Impulse, the 15th in the Geraldine Steele series, published by No Exit Press. Today we have a musical treat, a reading from the book, and of course an interview with Lee Russell. But before we get to that, I'd just like to say a few words about Lee and her career. Apart from the 15 novels of her most enduring and loved character, Geraldine Steele, and by the way, Lee is already writing the 18th novel in the series, Lee has published three Lucy Hall mysteries, another three featuring Ian Peterson, and two standalone novels. And actually, in the interview, she lets us in on a few things she's been up to in lockdown. A huge haul, considering Lee has only been publishing since 2009. Lee is also chair of the judges of the CWA and is a Royal Literary Fellow and no less than Lee Child called Lee unmissable, whereas the Daily Mail described her as a rare talent. I'm pleased to say that Lee is happy to read for us today, and we'll start with that, the new book Evil Impulse. Take it away, please, Lee. Hello, I'm Lee Russell, and it's lovely to be here today talking to Paul about my new book, Evil Impulse, which is the 15th in the Geraldine Steele series. So I thought I'd read you just a short extract from the book, just to introduce you to one of the themes that that takes place in the book. This is chapter four, so we're a short way into the book. She was the one he had chosen, and like a fool, she had allowed herself to believe they were happy. When he had told her he loved her, she had believed him without question. Now, seeing his arm around another woman's shoulders, A veil seemed to lift, as though it had been fluttering over her eyes ever since their wedding day. Remembering how happy she had been then, her eyes watered. She had convinced herself they'd been married in the sight of God, even if her husband had refused to have the wedding ceremony in her church. Abandoning her faith like that, at least outwardly, was another change marriage had wrought in her life. Her feet carried her across the wet pavement, seeming to act independently of her frozen will. The weather had turned chilly, although it was not yet winter, and trees lined the street with burnished yellow and gold, the curb littered with an early fall of brown leaves. Reaching the shelter of a shop front, she stood perfectly still, scarcely breathing, watching them. It had been bound to happen again, sooner or later. Looking at them together, Bella realised she'd been waiting for this moment for a long time, waiting and fearing. Her husband's regular visits to the health club and his occasional trips away from home staying out all night had been obvious signs that she had refused to recognise. One glimpse of them together changed everything. Her carefully constructed life swept away by a single gesture. Thank you, Lee. I think that gives us a real flavour of evil impulse. Hello, Lee, uh, and congratulations on the publication of Evil Impulse, the 15th Geraldine Steele novel. Welcome. Uh, if I could start with a question about Geraldine, and um, without giving too much away, uh, not just about the murders, but also about Geraldine's personal story. Um, what I will say is that 
there's a threat to her job in this book and her relationships with Ian and her identical twin sister, Helena. So my question is, how much are you prepared to tell us about Geraldine's personal troubles in the book? Um, in this book, I think, yes. I mean, we do follow the relationship between Geraldine and Ian, who are now working together, I think, in this book. Can I, can I just say, as an aside, I find this quite difficult in that um, Evil Impulse, here it is, um, is book number 15 in the series, and that is, uh, is imminently being published. Um, I have completed books 16 and 17, right. and book 16 is already edited. That will be out in um, August, I think, as deep cover. And um, book 17 is away with the editor at the moment. So I'm now having to sort of cast my mind back and remember what happened in book 15. And I'm also very much in the front of my mind is the ideas that I'm now thinking of for book 18. So <laughs> I, forgive me if I get a little bit confused. Um, but yes, in um, Evil Impulse, Geraldine and Ian are together and they've had quite a long um, relationship that has unfolded quite gradually through the books. So. Um, Anyone who has been reading through the series right from the beginning may remember that in the early books, Geraldine and Ian work together. She's the inspector and he is her sergeant. And that carries on for three books. Uh, they then separate and go their separate ways, but they keep in touch, each having a cameo appearance in each other's books because I then wrote a trilogy for Ian Peterson when he was not with Geraldine. Um, Ian was working in York and at some point, Geraldine, who had moved to London, had to leave London for reasons which I won't go into now because it might be a spoiler. Um, she moves to York, so Geraldine and Ian are now working together again. So there's been a, a very nice kind of um, sort of uh, development, a nice flow in their relationship, which I would love to say was all carefully planned out from the beginning. It wasn't. Um, I go from book to book. And as I start each book, I'm thinking, what on earth am I going to do now? What am I going to do with this book? And so there's no careful planning ahead of the arc of their relationship. But I have to say, had I planned it out, I could not have planned things out better. It's, um, it's just developed organically, their relationship. So they're now working together. So um, I now have to think of ways in which I can keep their relationship either very much in the background of the book, so it's no longer an issue, or ways in which to make it interesting. Um, so if you want to find out what happens in this book between them, you need to read the book. And I can confide that there will be more, um, more bumps in the road ahead for them before we get to book 20, because I recently um, signed a contract for books 17 to 20. So we are going to go up to 20 books in the series. I don't know why, I just had that idea in my head. Um, I think I, I'd read the Catfile series and I thought, yes, 20 books, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm going to do that. So uh, here I am. I'm now um, committed to writing another three books in the series and thinking of ideas. Um, so that doesn't really answer your question. I'm, I'm hedging around the question. OK, I'll tell you, I tell well, I will say for people then that one of the things it, that does happen in this book is it's it's um, very fraught. That's sparks fly for sure in this yeah. one. But I would like to go back to the relationship with Helena a little bit because you were very clear about Ian there. And it's. Um, 
I mean, they were separated as children. I think we can say that. And you, you certainly explain that in the book. And Helena had a very tough life. Um, and she's now got this relationship. She struggled. She, she was an addict. Um, and she's trying to stay on track. And she's got this relationship with Geraldine. And there's a bond between them. And I'm just curious how you see that bond. Um, love, obviously, as sisters or guilt because of the life that uh, Helena led or something much more fundamental about something special about the relationship between them as identical twins. Yes, I think um, I think in, in, in literature we do come across kind of universal themes. I mean, I was interested when you said love or guilt. Is there not a, a, a thread of guilt in every relationship mm. with people that we love because mm. we're never going to be as good as we want to be in relationships. We all lose our temper sometimes or forget to do things. Um, so yes, I mean, there is some guilt in the relationship, but I, I'm very conscious in my own life, and, and I hope this comes through a little bit in my writing, of this idea of, you know, there but for fortune, you know, the Joan Baez song, there but for fortune go you or I. And I have been almost unbelievably fortunate in my life. I've been really blessed. I've had such a lucky life. Not everybody does. And um, yes, I've worked hard and all the rest of it, but I have also been very lucky. And so I think um, the relationship between Geraldine and Helena, yes, it is a particular relationship between two particular women, but I think I'm also maybe striving to say something about how different any one of our lives could have been had our circumstances been different. So Geraldine and Helena are um, they're identical twins. They were separated at birth because Helena was a sickly child and was not expected to survive. So she stayed with their birth mother, whereas Geraldine was you know, more robust and she was given away for adoption. So Geraldine had a very, um, you know, a very affluent, fortunate upbringing in a very comfortably off middle-class family. And she has risen to become a detective inspector. Possibly she's going to go further within the ranks of the police force. Whilst her sister, who had a very much more difficult uh, background, ended up, as you say, becoming a user. And so they're really on completely opposite sides of the, of the tracks. What if their their upbringings had been reversed? Mm. And um, so, so I think there's an element of that in their relationship. Um, also, just this idea of how would any of us feel if we discovered that we had a very close blood relation relative that we knew nothing about? It's quite. I mean, it does happen in real life, doesn't it? It happens. Oh yeah, to people absolutely. It can be quite wonderful or quite horrendous. But in terms of writing fiction, it's an interesting question, isn't it? And there's there's all sorts of drama embedded in that. And so um, that's been a very interesting, you know, just as a writer following through potential storylines, there, there have been lots of ideas to pursue with that idea. And um, I think it's in Evil Impulse, in fact, that Ian meets Helena for the first time. Yes. And so we see her, we see her through somebody else's eyes, the eyes of somebody who knows Geraldine really well and loves her. And his reaction on seeing someone who is Geraldine, but isn't Geraldine, because they're identical twins, but because of their life experience, they're very similar, but they're very different. So there's all sorts of interesting ideas to explore there. Um, I try to be, and I always try to be, 
as sensitive as possible in, in the way I deal with these things, because I'm very conscious that there are people who discover identical twins about whom they knew absolutely nothing when they were growing up. And what kind of emotional experience must that be? I can only imagine I've not experienced it um, in the same way that when I'm invading, it's probably not the right word, but when I'm inhabiting the mind of a killer, right. I've never killed anybody. And uh, it, it's a flight of imagination. I, I, I would hate to get these things wrong. I don't know if I get them right. I mean, people say that I do, but I don't know. I, I, I would like to think that someone who had had the experience of discovering a, a close relative when they were an adult who read about Geraldine's experience would feel, yes, that's, that's a pretty fair representation. I hope it is, uh, but um, it's not something I've experienced. But yes, Geraldine's relationship with Helena is inevitably a difficult one, but they are, I think, beginning to work through issues. And then of course, something else happens, uh, which I won't say, because it's a bit of a spoiler, but um, so yeah, there's lots of avenues to pursue there. So it's, it, it's actually, I mean, it sounds awful because I'm writing about people getting killed and all these terrible things happening, but it's actually great fun writing about them. Right. I, th I will say one thing. I think if you've been getting it wrong about relationships and things, you'd have had letters coming in by the truckload. People, <laughs> I don't think people are very shy on like, coming forward when it comes to things like that. Um, okay, to move on a little bit um, about Geraldine and her relationship with the readership or readers, how do you think, or do you even think about that, actually? Do you, do you wonder about what readers feel about her? Um, I mean, is it just a respect for the qualities they find in the woman as they read her story, or, or do you think it's something deeper than that? And, and similarly, how is, how is your relationship with, with um, Geraldine? My relationship with Geraldine has developed um, organically, really. Uh, when I started writing, and it's, it's no secret to say that when I started writing, the character who interested me the most was the killer, and that is still the case. I'm most interested in my killers. Right. What does it drive somebody to behave in that way? Can we understand what's going on in the mind of somebody who kills? There are so many reasons why one person could kill another person. And I, in my books, I'm really exploring that idea. Um, the first draft for my first book, Cut Short, um, I really just brought Geraldine in as a function of the plot to solve the crime. Right. And my editor said to me, and she was absolutely right. She said, you have to make your detective more interesting. I wrote pages and pages about the killer. I became obsessed with this character. Right. She said, the detective is the series character whom readers are going to follow through the series. You have to make her more interesting so that readers want to read on. Um, it has really, it has astonished me how many readers have engaged with Geraldine. I did set out to make her, um, I mean, she doesn't, drink excessively, she doesn't have mental problems. I, I tried to make her an ordinary person because I felt in that way, partly we'd had a glut of bent coppers and, and divorce coppers and drunk coppers right. and, and uh, flawed detectives. Um, but also I thought if I could make her just a character that readers could identify with, that might be, you know, that might work quite well. Um, I think she's, um, from what from people's reaction to her 
she she does seem to be a little bit um, task orientated, focused on her work, a bit too driven. And I think in that way, she's a little bit like me in ways that I hadn't appreciated before right. I started writing about her. But I can honestly say that I've got to know her through writing the stories. She has become more and more real to me as I'm writing. And I think readers have taken her as, as a, a real character more readily than I have, really. Um, I remember one time um, one of the bookshop managers said to me, oh, I've, I've fallen in love with Ian Peterson. And, and I was thinking, what do you mean you've fallen in love with it? He's just something I made up. <laughs> and people say, what's going to happen to Geraldine? And I really don't know because I do literally make it up as I go along. As I said, I, I, I never planned all this out. I just make it up as I go along. So, um, yeah, Geraldine is becoming more, more, more and more real to me, increasingly real to me partly through her experiences and how she reacts to them. Um, I have a lot of admiration for her. She is driven by a desire for justice. And I think we, we need that, don't we, in our lives. And we need people Absolutely. who are prepared to go that extra mile to, uh, to preserve our, our system of justice. She, she's a very moral character in that sense. Conversely then, something you said there, picking up on that, um, it's less more, in a sense, with the murderer. You know, the, the idea of just putting little bits, giving people hints and, and, and slowly developing the story of the murderer or, or the, the, the mind behind the murderer, that's more appropriate. Um, yes, in some of my books, I do do that. And I, I love that. I love this sort of gentle drip feeding, um, leaving things to the reader's imagination. I, I think Hitchcock, such a brilliant film director and I find his films are far more powerful than a lot of modern films where you have all the special effects and all the blood and guts going up the walls and yes I like this idea of just putting in hints so readers are speculating there's a, a sort of a growing sense of menace but maybe you've got it wrong or have you got it wrong and so there's that sort of mystery to it and the slow build-up yes I find that can be very very effective that said some of my books just start with a wham bam murder and blood all over the walls so they're, they're you know they differ they differ it depends very much on the character of the killer and right. what his story what his story demands because all of my books um they all, I always start with the killer why is he doing this who is he killing and then the whole thing kind of spins out from there but the killer and the killer's motivation is what is the kind of the starting point and the nub of all my books I think yeah, I, I think that's true. And as you point out, all the books do start with a murder. That's the point you start from. Um, but you personally believe there's an alternative. I mean, thank God you do. But that violence and murder are never the answer. Uh, that there's always, at the very least, you can walk away. And I'm wondering, yeah. as a novelist, obviously, we talk about posing questions, not answering them. Um, but is this something you'd like readers to take away from the book, as well as an obvious abhorrence of violence? Um, yes, I think so. And I think um, crime fiction in general does kind of put forward that idea, doesn't it? Because it yes. never ends with the killer, does it? <laughs> Face it. <laughs> the killer is never the one who, very <laughs> rarely, the one who rides off into the sunset and gets the girl or whatever. I mean, it, it doesn't end well, does it? And um, I think um, one of the most brilliant examinations of this probably that I've ever come across is, is Shakespeare's Macbeth. Mm. Once you take that first step and then it's just a kind of descent into more and more horror and you can't get yourself out of it. And, you know, if only you hadn't 
taken that first step. You, you could have walked away. But I think with, um, with murder, more really than any other crime, um, possibly rape as well, you, you cannot take it back. You cannot retrieve it. I mean, even if you steal, you could pay the money back. Yes. Whatever you do, if you destroy something, you could recreate it. If you smash up somebody's car, you could buy them a new car. You know, in theory, once you kill somebody, there's no way back, is there? That's it. No. no. Done. Um, and so it never ends well, does it? There is, there is no possible way out, really, for a murderer, is there? Because you, no. you can't put it no, I think you're right. It's that um, thing about a tragedy, isn't it? That the murderer has it, their own seeds of destruction within themselves, if you like, you know, and every step they take is a step in the wrong direction and it gets worse and worse. Um, yes, and, and sometimes, sometimes it's just the, the wrong character in the wrong place. Mm. It could be that there's a killer who, if they had never come across a particular situation or a particular other person, other character, they might not have committed the crime. And that's also part of the, the tragedy, isn't it? You know, yes. I mean... I know it's, it was in Macbeth and he was going to kill Duncan anyway, but if he'd never met the witches or what if he hadn't married Lady Macbeth or whatever, you know, mm. it, it, not every, I think not every killer is absolutely kind of bound to kill. Sometimes they just come across the situation in which they can't not. Yes. Commit I, crime. I take your point. I mean, one of the things you said to me the last time we spoke actually was that anger trumps everything in a sense, you know, that, that, um, some people have a very low threshold for the, the point where they reach this yeah. crazy decision. Um, yes, but we all we all have our cutoff point, don't we? I mean, yes. I think there are. Yeah, you know, I, I think we probably discussed this before. If you take a woman who has been um, abused by her husband for years and years and years, and then she sees the husband begin to abuse her daughter, and she kills him, that is slightly different, isn't it, to somebody yes. who kills somebody else because they I don't know want their money or something. So there are degrees and there are different kinds of murder. It's still murder, isn't it? And as you say, there is always another way, but it's exploring the circumstances and the reasons why people kill that, that interests me, really. Yeah, well, let's look at that then, because Evil Impulse does that. Um, I, all your books do, in fact, you get inside the mind of the killer. And that's, that's an interesting contrast between the, the side of the story that comes from Geraldine and the police and, and trying to follow the murderer anyway. But um, is that that uh, thing, looking at the, the motives of the killer, is that sort of what drives the novels? Yes, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, let's say if you kill somebody, which hopefully you never would, but if you kill somebody, if you were the sort of person who did, if you were a murderer, if you kill somebody, then there are two possibilities really aren't there one is that you are so racked with guilt that you end up killing yourself or going to the police whatever um confessing the other is that you somehow have to convince yourself that what you did was justified and to some extent we all do that in life don't we i mean we all tend to do what we want when we can and you know there's a lot of willful blindness in our lives isn't there we like to do what we want to do so we kid ourselves it's the right thing um, but um, so how, how does somebody who's killed somebody get into that state where they think they've done the right thing? Do they hate that other person so much that they think they deserve to die? Are we looking at a complete psychopath who has no moral sense of right and wrong at all? There are so many different, uh, or as you say, just anger. 
and then afterwards, how would you deal with that? If you, if you had killed somebody in a fit of anger, how would you deal with it? It would either destroy you as a person or you'd have to find a way to keep going and convince yourself that, yeah, yeah. well, he had it coming, whatever, whatever you might think. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's really what I'm investigating and trying to explore in my books. I don't really know what it would be like, but I have done things, you know, I've done wrong things, sort of, why, yes. you know, I can't, what now? You know, very, very trivial. <laughs> and then uh, you sort of justify it to yourself afterwards, don't you? Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know, you take a small child out to the shops and then you realise when you come out that, oh, they're still, they're still holding that toy that they had picked off the shelf and you didn't pay for it. What do you do? Do you go back and confess and pay for it? Or do you just go home and keep quiet because nobody will know? And, you know, that's a relatively trivial thing, but it's still a crime, well, a, isn't it? It's a moral question and it is a crime, absolutely, yeah. Yes, and, and there's, it, it is still a moral question, yes, and it's a dilemma, and what do you do? You know nobody's going to find out, so you just sort of keep quiet. Well, you know, you go on and on and on from there. If you can kill somebody and nobody's going to find out and, and you want that person dead, would you find a way of justifying it to yourself? I mean, we wouldn't, would we? Because it's, it's way, way a step too far, isn't it? But for some people, it's yeah. not. But then also we haven't come across the kind of circumstances that might push us more and more towards that and, and might, I mean, in a sense, is, yeah. um, is uh, are murderers, if you like, um, insane? Or is there some insanity almost in a murder? In every way? I think, yeah, I think to kill another person is an insane act. There's no question in my mind it is an insane act. Does it mean, does it necessarily follow that a person who commits that insane act is insane themselves? Yes, generally they are, but maybe sometimes they're not. As you say, it's, that is the question, isn't it? Is it something any one of us could do? I mean, yeah. I've said this before, I'm completely opposed to violence, but if somebody was threatening my life or the life of a member of my family, mm. and you know, I had a way of very easily and simply killing that other person, would I do it? Would I, would I let, you know, self-defense? We would, I guess we would all kill somebody else if, if it was self-defense, if it was, you know, if you were out to kill me and it was me or you and I could kill you. Yeah, no, I understand. I think I probably would. <laughs> um, so, you know, <laughs> there are there are circumstances in which any one of us could commit murder. And I think self-defense is in a different kind of category, isn't it? But um, how, how blurred can the lines become? And also, I think it's... Um, it's difficult to know what any one of us might do if we were in that kind of fear. Um, I remember um, watching a program on telly, and I think it was when that um, farmer had shot a young boy. Do you remember that case? I, I can't do, remember yes. his name. Um, anyway, and um, so they were discussing it on this discussion program about um, you know somebody killing somebody else. And I remember one chap in the audience. He said, "I'm a mem you know I'm a soldier. I'm a trained." soldier trained in in using weapons mm -hmm. he said if i was at home and i heard an intruder in my house and i felt threatened he said you know i'm trained to deal with weapons but i don't think i would stop to sort of find out what they were about he said i might well just you know shoot first ask questions later if i thought they were potentially dangerous and he said this farmer somebody completely untrained but he had a weapon it's, you know, in the heat of the moment, in, the, in that terror, in the night, can you imagine waking up in the dark and there's somebody in your house, you don't know who it is. We can do all sorts of things when we're terrified, 
as when we're angry. I, I think fear perhaps um, goes alongside with anger. You said earlier, you know, about yes. anger. It, it, you know, we do things in anger that we would not normally do. But we, can, we do things when we're frightened as well, don't we, that we would not normally do. So I think if somebody is put into that state of mind, they might behave in a way that is insane, even though they are not insane. And as we said earlier, everybody has their cutoff point. Some people are, become angry much more quickly. Some people become frightened much more quickly. So it's, um, it's very difficult to judge, isn't it? I mean, I do wonder, is there such a thing as an evil person? Or are there just people who, are, who commit evil acts because they are, well, disturbed, let's say, um, or frightened or angry beyond endurance? I don't know. I mean... No, but um, it's clear from that. That's, that's why you like writing about murderers. You, you want to get inside the head, you don't you? You want to sort yeah. of answer those questions. I mean, one of the, the bizarre things about human beings is this ability to hold two opposing ideas at the same time. Um, and to make a logic out of something. I mean, in Evil Impulse, the killer has a logic. Yes. What happens. Yes. It yes. isn't something we'd recognise, but it's no, true. No, but once you make that first step, then, as you say, everything follows logically. You have to find that first step into the killer's psyche. And then, yeah, it, what they do and say after that has its own logic, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. Something that follows on from that, which actually disturbed me a little bit when I read it, but I think there's a comparison in the book um, between the instincts oh. of a predatory, well, the instincts of two types of predators, one, a killer, and the other one, the kind of serial adulterer, the kind of user of women. I mean, basically, you say that they're both hunters. So is it just a question of degree with that? Um, no, because I think... Um, with a serial adulterer, unless he's a rapist, there is some um, consent, isn't there? Right. From his victim, you know, if you see it as a victim, see the woman as a victim. Um, even if he lies to her and she believes his lies, she has still, you know, there's some element of choice, isn't there? She yes. has not um, examined his lies too closely because she's desperate to have a relationship with him, whatever. But you know, even if there's willful blindness, whatever's going on, there is some element of consent. I don't think anyone who's murdered consents to be a victim in the same way, do they? No. So I think it's actually very different. I mean, I can't remember how the comparison, you know, how closely I made the comparison in the book, right. but I think they're morally, they're very different, aren't they? I yes, they are. This, this goes back to what I said earlier, though, about giving away spoilers, because I can't tell you what I picked up in the book without giving something away. So we'll move on from that one. Um, one of the things that does attract readers to the books, I think, is the fact that you explore social issues. Um, we've had drugs, homelessness, gambling, um, teenage rebellion, mental health. Um, you like boring social issues in the books, don't you? Yes, I think it's important. And I think, um, I can't remember who it was, and I should know, who said that... Um, literature holds a mirror up to nature mm. and to some extent I think um, crime fiction does do that we're looking at how we behave as individuals when we're put into situations of extreme um, stress but also looking at how we behave as a society um, so the issue of gun crime the issue of drugs issue of um, teenage rebellion you know, all of these issues 
how do we deal with them as a society? I think um, we're very often a bit behind the uh, behind the times, aren't we? Uh, um, for example, let's say with um, social media, mm. social media kind of exploded, and um, then we started to realise as a society that actually it's not all good, is it? A bit like must have been when printing first. Uh, first arose and people thought this is wonderful we can disseminate ideas but actually it can also be used for propaganda purposes yes and so the you know social media can be a wonderful thing or it can be very very damaging to society because it sets up echo chambers where all sorts of conspiracy theories and goodness knows what i mean there's been a lot of this going on lately um it's not necessarily a good thing and then of course you get all the cyber bullying i mean there are issues and problems with social media absolutely which I don't think we're totally foreseen, you know, the, the, the restraints and the controls were not in place when we started. And so I think, um, I mean, that's an issue that has been dealt with in, in some books. It's something that I might uh, look at. I think I dealt with it actually in quite an early book where I had a young girl being groomed um, mm. on the internet uh, by, by a paedophile. Um, there are issues everywhere, aren't there, for society and Crime fiction examines them in the terms of in terms of a story, but I think these stories have a wider resonance, and I think that's what's significant about any literature, really, that we can draw from it things that relate to our own lives. We can, I mean, even going back to the ancient Greeks or the Bible, you know, and all the rivalries between brothers and all of these yeah. things, you know, stories that are replayed again and again and again through the centuries, through the generations, within our own lives. So um, I think, I mean, I'm not saying I think my stories have such resonance that they will be read in 5,000 years' time, but um, certainly now I think they have some, some relevance beyond just the individual characters in the story. And I think readers possibly relate to different characters because situations that crop up in the stories might uh, you know they might have heard of or experienced in their own lives well they, they so, do they definitely crop up in real life um one of the things that strikes me is that domestic abuse crops up in a few of the books and it's certainly yes. part of evil impulse again it's the kind of characters you're dealing with you know and it's, it's an element of the story but i'm thinking in this particular terms as um neglecting is also a form of um, abuse you know, just not caring about somebody, not caring about the relationship and pushing them away. And that's part of the story in Evil Impulse. Yes, yes. And of course, these things go on and they go on unnoticed. Very often they go on unnoticed. I mean, you know, um, murderers are often unnoticed very often when somebody is finally um, arrested for murder. You know, the neighbours will say, oh, he seems such a nice man. Oh, we had no idea, you know. And, and um a lot of psychopaths are very clever at covering their tracks. They're very charming. That's how they get their own way. Um, they say, don't they, charming people are manipulative people because they're charming because they want to get their own way. Um, so all the more so with uh, people who are just, as you say, neglecting, ignoring people who live with them, perhaps people who love them, all sorts of things going on behind closed doors. Um, so... Uh, I think it's in a way, if, if the stories can kind of touch on something that's going on, that might actually be quite interesting for readers. It might be, maybe therapeutics is, is you know going a bit too far, but it's, 
I found myself in my own experience, when you're going through a very, very difficult time, a very emotionally painful time, mm-hmm. you feel very isolated. Right. And then you discover that somebody else is going through the same thing. It's hugely reassuring and liberating because you realize it's not just you. Because when we're miserable, we do tend to go in on ourselves and think it's just me. And that's why I think um, a lot of these groups, the women's shelters and so on, are very, very valuable because, you know, women discover that actually there are other women in the same situation. And again, if you read about it, even if it's a fictional character who's going through a similar situation, it can be very engaging and and, um, hopefully a little bit helpful. Although I'm not writing kind of self-help books or something. I'm writing murder stories. (laughs) But I think there are all these different elements and all these different threats. Um, And Geraldine's um, problems with her boss. Nobody who goes out to work has never had a problem with their boss in some shape or form. Um, So all of these things are things we can relate to and um, so there are, as well as being an individual murder story, there are also more universal themes because, you know, human relations and anger and threat and all this, they are common to all of us at some time in our lives, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And one other thing about the book, um, and it's true of, I think, several of the books certainly that I've read, is the way that you like to mirror things, I think. In, you've got a murder story, and I'm not suggesting you mirror elements of the murder in the in Geraldine's story, but um, say, for instance, the last book, Deadly Revenge, there was a theme about a baby, and then there was a theme in Geraldine and Ian's life, and it wasn't about them being pregnant or anything like that, but there was sort of, you were coming at the issue from several sides, if you like. I mean, is that something you enjoy, sort of exploring in a 360 way, if you like? Um, I, I don't think I do it deliberately. I, right. I see that that happens. I think it's more that I have a certain issue or theme in my mind. And so it kind of leads through into every aspect of the story. But I think that does work because it gives the whole story a kind of coherence. And as you say, right. looking at it from different angles. And in a way, I mean, that happens with Geraldine and her twin sister, that they're, they have the same starting point And then they almost come at life from a different from a different position, don't they? And um, yes, I mean, I think, and this is one of the sort of paradoxes in a way I find of writing fiction. We are so complex, aren't we? And so different. I mean, you know, some mornings I wake up and I just can't be bothered to do anything. And other mornings I wake up all full of like, so am I a lively person? Am I a, you know, sluggish person? It varies, doesn't it? And and you know your mood can change, can't it? You're feeling a bit miserable, or the lockdown and everything, and then the sun's shining and you cheer up. Am I a miserable person? Am I a cheerful person? But with a character in fiction, they cannot change from minute to minute, from day to day, right. because then readers would not know what that character was like. So yeah. they have to be, they have to be more consistent than perhaps you know we are generally in life. Right. Um, but um. I've forgotten what we were talking about now. <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? I, I, I think it makes it makes sense in relation to the question anyway. Just yeah, and you also mentioned there that um, you you um, said once to me before when you're not writing, you're thinking about writing. I know that's, that's yes. the old adage anyway. Um, but how do you relax? Do you get the chance to get away from it, or is it sort of always there with you? 
Um, I'm not very good at relaxing. I have started reading more during lockdown, actually. I, I tend to go in phases and I haven't read anything for a while. And now I've suddenly read about six books in a week because I just got back into reading. Um, but I think that's because I'm in between Geraldine books. I'm in between yeah. books. So I don't have a, a, a book in my head. Um, but um, how do I relax? Um, sunshine helps. I find, you know, when the sun's shining, you can just sit in the sun and do nothing for an hour and in a way that you can't do if you're sitting indoors. No. And I can fully understand how people who live on these wonderful tropical islands just sit on the beach, don't they? And you don't need to do anything and a coconut drops from the tree, you eat it. And um, so, it's yes, tempting. I mean, the, the, sorry? It's tempting. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and um, we were, um, I've done some creative writing courses on a Greek island, Skiros, right. and it's wonderful. But um, you sit on the hillside and you look down on this little plain and then there's the beach and you can see there's fish in the sea and there are goats and it's fertile land. And you can really understand why philosophy and theatre and so on actually... Mm started there because people had food and they didn't need to worry about sheltering from the cold and so they actually they could grow food they they actually had time to sit and think and talk whereas in some um, parts of the world people would have been far more occupied with building shelters and running after food you know if you can fish you don't need to run quite so fast do you no. as if you're chasing bison <laughs> so um but how do I relax? Well, I think mainly through writing and through reading. It just takes you out of yourself, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. One last question then on, on how easy that is, at the things at the moment. You made your point earlier. Um, this book, Evil Impulse, was delivered probably before the COVID thing started. Yes. Wasn't it? So the actual influence of COVID has come when you're writing books 17 and 18, because you're writing book 18 now. Um, has it had much of an impact? I'm, I'm thinking even if it's things like being able to visit York, you know, and actually see the places um, firsthand again. Oh, yes, it's made a difference in terms of researching locations, definitely, because mm. I can't go there. Yes. Um, so we won't look too closely at those in uh, books, you know, 18 and 19 um, at the <laughs> location. I have to make them up a bit. But um, in terms of including the lockdown in my books, I haven't so far. I've just ignored it. I think it's a great thing in life to, um, if you can do so without causing any problems, just ignore things you don't like. And I, I think in my books particularly, because for me, fiction is an escape right. from reality. And I don't really want to be focusing on lockdown and its effects um, when I'm writing my books. I want to be in a different world. And I think there's all sorts of um, ideas that could arise out of lockdown, which have crossed my mind. For example, you know, you're in a street and nobody has really been able to see their neighbours for six months. Mm -hmm. And when everybody comes out again, somebody's husband isn't, doesn't emerge. And she says, oh, yeah, he right. died during lockdown. And of course, nobody can go to funerals. So nobody really knows. Maybe she's buried him in the back garden. But who would know? You know, there might be a, mm. quite a few people who just disappear. But um, I don't really want to deal with uh, the effects of lockdown. I, I think it'd be a difficult thing to write about. It would be a very different sort of book because nobody would be able to go anywhere or do anything, would they? And how would a murderer stalk his 
victim or find his victim somewhere if he can't leave the house. It'd be a bit of a giveaway. You'd only be able to murder somebody who was in your house, wouldn't you? So I think the police would uh, not have much trouble conducting the investigation. So um, probably just carry on ignoring it in the books. Yeah, it's more of a dystopian novel sort of subject, isn't it, really? Yes, yes. I have actually, just by chance, during lockdown, I've written a couple of dystopian novels, one of which is coming out in April with a different publisher. I think that was probably an effect of, um, of lockdown. But um, I also wrote a very, what I thought was a very humorous novel, which I don't think anybody's ever going to publish. It's pretty silly, but it's great fun to write. So it takes us different ways, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and um, at one point I just was watching the news and there's a new word for this now. It's called doom scrolling, where you just scroll down all the COVID right. news. And I was just doing this, you know, constantly and getting really upset about how terrible it all was and then I got to a stage I had to actually ration myself with how much I was prepared to look at all of this but we adjust don't we we adapt and um, it's a different sort of lifestyle now isn't it and um, I I guess we'll just adapt back again I mean it will seem quite strange when we can go out and actually go near other people that's it but at least we know now that that day will come is a game changer yeah absolutely Thank you very much. Good luck with uh, Evil Impulse. That's been a lovely interview. Thank you. Well, thanks to Lee for that very interesting interview. I'd just like to give a personal appraisal now of Geraldine Steele and a few words on Evil Impulse. If writing a successful series was easy, all writers would do it. There's no magic formula. But anyway, Lee has cracked it. So why do readers keep coming back to the Geraldine Steele novels? Evil Impulse is the 15th in the series. And don't forget, she made appearances in the Ian Peterson novels as well. Well, of course they come for the murder mysteries, but they also come because they're very interested in Geraldine Steele herself. They love the personal side of the books. The quality of the writing is a given, and Lee's novels are very easy to read. Mostly, she's consistent, very consistent. Unconsciously, or maybe even subconsciously, Lee really knows what readers want. Geraldine has become a friend to readers who appreciate her honesty and her spirit and her dedication. They really care what happens to her. More than that, they identify with her and her daily travails. Fans are there when Geraldine suffers and when she triumphs. They root for her. With Geraldine's relationship with her colleague Ian is a reflection on all our relationships. The highs and lows, the arguments and the moments of joys, the perseverance. And things are an awful lot more intense now that they're together since Geraldine followed Ian back to York. Although that's not a fact that they've shared with their colleagues yet. Of course, the novels wouldn't work without intriguing cases. And the novels explore important social issues that matter to us. From gambling to domestic abuse, drug addiction to adultery teenage angst to serious mental health issues, and even homelessness. Exploring such relevant themes chimes with readers. Crucially, Lee wants to explore what makes a person a murderer. Each novel gives us that insight into the mind of a killer. We all want to know what makes people tick. And Lee studiously avoids dating her stories with real events, so then they can be read in ten years' time without feeling they belong to a particular year in the past. In fact, they could be today. One thing I really love is the change of location. This really helps to keep things fresh. Geraldine began her career in Kent 
and then she moved to London, and now she's in York. And this is pretty bold. Most series like to ground their protagonist in one place. I mean, imagine Morse out of Oxford, or Rebus south of the border. But it works for Geraldine Steele, it really works. Of course, if you're a regular, what you'll know is that Lee Russell's books are also written over a very short time period, a matter of days or weeks, and they're very pacey and exciting because of that. So what about Evil Impulse? Well, in this book, D.I.E. and Peterson and D.S. Geraldine Steele are hunting a very disturbed murderer. Someone is killing women and taunting the police. A young girl has gone missing from home, and Geraldine's past catches up with her, and it jeopardises her career and her relationship with her identical twin sister, Helena, and with Ian. Just when everything seemed to be going so well in her personal life, it's all begun to unravel again, and sparks really fly in this novel. Once again, Lee explores themes of domestic abuse, self-esteem, trust, misogyny, and toxic masculinity. But of course, none of that tells you who the killer is. If you want to find that out, you'll have to read Evil Impulse for yourself. It really is a little too fatuous to try and rate titles in the series. What I will say about Evil Impulse, though, is that it's right up there with the best. This is a book that could attract new readers, and it certainly will thrill the many fans of Lee already out there. Before we leave you on a high with a really lovely, soulful musical treat, I'd just like to say that we really hope you've enjoyed this first Crime Time podcast. And we look forward to inviting you back to future episodes when the podcast with Paul Burke launches as a regular feature, and that'll be in the spring. In the meantime, Evil Impulse and all of the Geraldine Steele titles are available from No Exit Press Direct, uh, all book outlets, and your usual online supplier, not forgetting bookshop.org. Thanks to Ian, Gem and Son and Holly for producing this episode. Take a look at Crime Time Online. It's edited by the incomparable Barry Forshaw and is great for reviews, interviews and features. And that includes films as well as crime fiction. And it can be found at www.crimetime.co.uk. Thank you. Now, Lee's daughter, Philippa, performs as Southgate and Lee and I'll let her introduce the track, but I'd just like to say one thing first. These really are tough times for musicians, and you can find Philippa doing her thing every day on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash ukulelepa. And I'll spell that, that's U-K-U-L-E-L-I-P-A. Philippa has been posting a little lockdown cheer every day, and it really is well worth a look. But as I said, over to Lee to introduce it, so it's goodbye from me, and thank you very much for listening. Um, well, this is a song um, that was written by my daughter and her partner, and um, I think it's one of my favourite of their songs. It's about the passage of time, and um, it has lines like, soon you'll find you've run out of time. And the lyrics are very much um, along the lines of um, the, the poem, at my back I always hear times winged chariot hurrying near. It's saying time is short, we have to do things. But at the same time, the music is very slow and jazzy. And, and it seems to me to say something about life in general, especially during lockdown. Every day I get up a bit later and it's like the, the um, intention is there to seize every moment and make the most of the days that we have. But at the same time, the music is just, oh, just 
I'll do it tomorrow, slowing down. And so I think it, it kind of encapsulates something about the, the experience of being alive, really. And uh, so that's why I chose this song. Don't wait for fate to tell you 